You're listening to A Conduit's Diary, a podcast featuring my diary entries as I investigate paranormal activity. This is rated explicit because I have a foul mouth and I'm kind of an asshole. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast so you can share the love. Now, on to episode five, a nice place to rest your head. Two thousand and seven, part two. Despite living in Phoenix for eighteen years, I'd never really stepped foot into the desert. There was nothing appealing about it to me. Being fair-skinned, freckled, and with bright red hair, the sun wasn't a good friend of mine. While all my friends wanted to spend their summers floating down the Salt River, I attended once with one hundred SPF and a hat, and I still burnt the top three layers of my skin off. Hiking wasn't too different. Physical activity in general wasn't in my wheelhouse. I took dance my freshman year of high school so I didn't have to run the mile, much less sweat. Stephanie was always in some sort of sport while I actively avoided them. My extracurriculars included academic decathlon and yearbook. There was nothing appealing to me about hiking a damn mountain. Hema, however, felt very differently. Hema didn't want to be a botanist just because she liked plants. It's because she loved nature. Her dorm room was crawling with plants well before it became a cool millennial trait. Her roommate tried to get her kicked out of the dorm so many times that res life let her break her lease early and move into an apartment just off campus. Thankfully, it was walking distance from the dorm so we could still hang out. We became fast friends after the Steve incident. She came by my room almost daily, and we found out we had most of our classes together. We also realized we had a lot of other things in common. We liked the same weird stuff. She'd seen the same obscure TV shows I had, read the same crappy young adult fantasy books. She even had a streak for the paranormal like I did. I hadn't told her anything about the whole seeing ghosts thing. I never really told anyone, and I wasn't about to start now. One thing Hema and I absolutely diverged on, though, was the need to be outside. Despite being blonde, she had the skin that never seemed to burn. Her sandal tan lines were embarrassing, but she wore them with pride. She'd wake up ass early on the weekends and drive to all ends of Tucson to take pictures of flowers and plants, go hiking, and do other weird outdoorsy stuff. This was just the start of Facebook, back when you needed an invite code to sign up, and she plastered her low-quality camera photos all over it. Every time she invited me, I not so politely declined. I made an exception just this one time, because I knew we weren't going to be alone. Just the week before, we befriended a good-looking guy from down my co-ed hall and invited him to go hiking. Well, Hema invited him to go hiking because I wanted to get to know him better. It wasn't just that I was shy. It was that I was mortified that he'd quickly find out just how weird and socially awkward I was. Hema was weird, but not socially awkward, and it seemed to make up for everything else. If anything, it diverted her weirdness into an almost cool girl status. She was not afraid of who she was and wore it loud and proud. She didn't hesitate to flag him down in the hall one day, ask his name, and ask if he liked to hike. I already knew his name and that he liked to hike. He was on our dorm's Facebook group and was part of the early days of mass adding each other before knowing anyone. 
I didn't realize we were friends on Facebook until his photo popped up on my feed one day, showing him lounging near a pool with a Dos Equis in hand. His name was Anthony, and he was tall, tan, and gorgeous. Much to my horror and excitement, Anthony accepted Hema's invite. I'm sure it's because he thought she was cute and that she was hitting on him, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. Hema had been openly gay since she was in sixth grade, and it wouldn't take long for him to realize that. The trail is pretty easy, she consoled me as I had a mini breakdown in the car ride. It's also shaded, and it's early in the morning, and it's practically fall. She swept her hand to motion to the thermometer on her car, which showed that it was only 80 degrees at 7 a.m. in mid-September. Yes, I can tell by the changing of the license plate colors, I said, pouting. It's only a mile in and a mile out. We'll be back in the car in like 45 minutes, she replied, ignoring my comment. She was taking us further and further east, away from campus and through Tucson. The city itself wasn't very large, but getting from one side to the other took an inordinate amount of time due to the speed limit of 35 and the red lights every few blocks. She passed the time by turning up the volume on her radio and singing along to some mixtape she made of obscure indie music I'd never heard of before in my life. At last, we passed the edges of civilization, and she pulled over in a fairly residential-looking area. The homes were expensive, and her old beater car looked out of place, but as usual, she wasn't bothered. She shut off the engine and hopped out the car, heading straight for the only other car in the small parking lot. She waved to Anthony, who slid out from behind the driver's seat of his car, and smiled to return the wave. "'You see that?' she said, pointing to a house on the ridge of the mountain. "'The house with the tin roof?' Paul McCartney lives there. She said it with such authority neither of us thought to question her. You know Rachel, right? She lives down your hall. His head tilted toward me and he regarded me from behind his sunglasses. Then he nodded enthusiastically. Yeah, room 312, right? I tried to fight off a blush and nodded lamely. That's me. Come on, let's get to the end of the trail before the sun gets much hotter, Hema said, slinging her small backpack onto her back after pulling out her camera. Solid piece, Anthony remarked. She pulled it away from her body to allow him to examine it and nodded. I found a pretty good deal on eBay, such an untapped resource, she remarked, heading for a poorly marked trail along the side of the parking lot. She was right. The trail was easy and it was shaded. Hema popped in and out of our conversation in between taking pictures of flowers or plants, pointing out if they were indigenous to the region or not. A lot of people brought their crap with them when they moved out here. It's why there's palm trees and all this other weird stuff out here. People just brought it with them when they moved. You'd think it would have all died, remarked Anthony. Probably just stubborn, I said. He laughed, and our conversation continued much like this. Until I saw him. Well, them, I guess. They were near the edge of the trail, and that's when I noticed glimpses of them through the shrubbery. We were walking along a wash with large cottonwood trees that hung overhead and provided ample shade. Along the edges of the wash sat various plants that made it difficult to see too far off the trail. At first I thought it was my imagination, but the more I looked, the more I saw them. Ghosts, spirits, the dead, the undead, whatever you want to call them. There were at least four or five of them, loitering around aimlessly. I don't pretend to be an expert, and I don't think there is an expert, but ghosts fall into very few categories. At a site of rage or grief or mass death, you tend to have residual energy, I guess. It can be angry, it can be sad, it can be happy. 
The point is that it sticks around and lingers and can manifest as electrical issues or things that fall off the wall. Sometimes those energies are so strong, usually the angry or sad ones, that they can manifest as actual beings. These are the ghosts that people sometimes see. For ghosts to be loitering around, I knew there was a mass death nearby. I know what you're thinking. How did I know they were ghosts? If they mimic their lives or are just residual energy, how could I tell them apart from a living person? It wasn't always easy. When I was a kid, I thought they were real. Well, they are real, but I thought they were alive. I'd have conversations with them. My dad called it my invisible friends. My teachers called it an overactive imagination. And then, later, a really not funny fib. My mother knew what it was all along, and she'd often point out to Stephanie that I was special, just like her. I think it was in the third grade when I finally understood what I was seeing. Every day, I would wait outside my school for mom to pick me up in her car and drive me and Stephanie home. A few teachers would chaperone to make sure students got into the right cars and that the people who pulled up were truly parents. One of the teachers was an older woman with dark auburn hair and streaks of white in it. She always looked a little sad, and she was usually standing with an older woman. Oftentimes, mom would forget Stephanie and I. It was one of those days, and Stephanie had wandered off to the school office to have them call mom. I was sitting outside on the curb, playing with rocks, when I heard the teacher approach. Everything okay? She asked me. I nodded. My sister's inside because mom forgot us again. She'll come soon. I went back to playing with the rocks. The teacher sat down on the curb next to me. Is it okay if I sit here? She asked. I nodded but didn't look up. She made normal conversation with me. How old was I? What's my name? What did I want to be when I grow up? At last, she ran out of things to ask. So I decided to ask her a question. Where's your friend? The older lady normally with her had left some time before. Who? She asked. Your friend, the one with the hat, I told her. She froze and blinked at me. The hat? She asked, her voice strained. I nodded. Yes, there's an old lady with you a lot of the time. She wears a big green hat with a sunflower on it. She was always smiling. She was here earlier. Did she leave? By now, Stephanie had exited the office and was skipping to where we were, pointing to our mother's car driving too fast up the road. Mom's here, she called out. I stood and started to brush the dust off my shorts when the teacher's hand shot out and grabbed me by the arm. Stephanie stared, her eyes wide. Who told you to say that? The teacher demanded. I could see her eyes were getting wet with tears and her grip felt painful on my arm. I tried to jerk it away, but she held tighter, not letting go. Ouch, let me go, I said. She blinked and then let go, her hand going to her chest. I'm, I'm sorry, Rachel, I just... That's not funny. It's not funny to make things up and say them, she told me. I shook my head and edged away from her, watching mom's car barrel up the pickup area with conviction. I didn't make it up. I'm sorry if you don't like her. You never talk to her. She's always smiling at you. I thought you were friends. I shouldered my backpack and ran the few steps to Stephanie, who pushed me behind her protectively. Don't touch my sister, she practically growled, her eyes narrowing. The teacher waved her hands, wiping tears that were now brimming over her eyelids. By now, Mom had pulled up and rolled down the window. Oh my gods, I am so sorry I lost track of time, and Rachel, Stephanie, get in the car. The teacher moved to the driver's side of the car and peered into the window to talk to Mom. I never knew what she said. She spoke in a hushed tone. At the end of their short conversation, Mom patted her hand and said, 
Rachel can see things. Be comforted in the fact that your mother is still with you. Before rolling up the window, she cast me knowing glances in the rearview mirror the entire drive home. What I failed to mention, though, is part of me knew these people I was seeing weren't entirely normal. What I failed to mention about the woman's hat is that it was upside down. The big, floppy hat was perched, sunflower first, on her head. Despite the fact that it was on wrong, it never fell, no matter which way she moved. Every time I saw one of them, a ghost, an apparition, or whatever, there was always something off about them. A tie was tied at the bottom, not the top. Half of their mustache was missing. It was harder to see these as a child, but as I got older, I realized how to feel for them, too. I could sense their energy and know if they were a ghost or not, and mostly figure out what their intentions were. I was lucky, I realized, when I did, because when you're a kindergartner who talks to yourself, it's not that strange. But as you get older, teachers start to notice. Now that I was older, I could feel the spirits in the desert. It started with a creeping along the back of my neck, like a drop of sweat had slid way down my spine, or like a bug scurried across my exposed neck. It made my pulse quicken, and before I realized it, I was on the lookout for the source of the sensation. That's when I noticed the movement through the trees and saw them. You see something? asked Anthony, following my line of vision to the desert. I shrugged, swallowing the sensation down. It was always a shock to see them at first. Probably a bird or a dog or something. Don't tell Hema, she'll try and find it and take a picture of it. I don't care about the four-legged variety, she told me over her shoulder, sharing a conspiratorial smile. We're almost to the end of the trail, the grand finale, she said teasingly. Anthony looked to me and I shrugged. She's the hiker. I avoid the elements, I told him. My kind doesn't take well to the sun, I added. He laughed, patting a dark brown arm. All it takes is five minutes under the sun for this to develop. Tanning oil who? By now, we'd reached a crest in the trail and a small overlook. Hema hopped onto a rock and extended her arms in front of her, smiling broadly. Ta-da! Over the ridge of the wash sat an actual ghost town. Well, a shady rendition of one. What is this place? asked Anthony, his eyes wide. Hema's grin widened. Did you all ever watch that cowboy TV show as a kid? Hey, cowboy, here it is. She waved her arms at the set. When you ride all night and you settle down, keep an eye out for the very next town. They'll welcome you like a long-lost friend. Find a nice place to rest and mend. She started to sing the intro to the old cowboy show from our childhood. I burst out laughing, skipping down the last few rocks and into the walkway of the main street for Hey, Cowboy. How did you find this? Anthony marveled, spinning around. She wagged her eyebrows. A lady never tells her secrets. We moved through the set, letting Hema snap pictures of us imitating poses of cowboys on the various stages set up and falling apart. I'll be right back, I said after a few more adventures, heading into the wash. Need assistance? asked Anthony. I shook my head. Nah, this is solo girl business. I'll be back in a flash, I told him. He waved his hands, understanding, and I disappeared down a side wash, grinning despite myself. Note to self, you owe Emma big time. I was just finishing up when I heard a noise uncomfortably close to me. I sat up and pulled my pants as quickly as I could, turning to be face to face with a ghost. It was an older man, maybe in his late 50s, with bushy eyebrows that connected in the middle like caterpillars. 
He was dressed in the same old western garb that was common on the TV show. I swallowed, not daring to move, before he turned and headed a different way. He must not have seen me or, or realized what I was. I watched him wander the wash aimlessly for a few seconds before climbing back out and into the main set. Why did the show end anyway? I heard Anthony ask Hema as I trotted to meet them. They were sitting on the edge of a partially broken fence, surrounding an overgrown pasture. The set was haunted, she said simply. What? I asked, trying to keep my voice calm and neutral as I climbed on the other leg of the fence. Yeah, the set was haunted. They said weird shit happened all the time. Things would go flying off the wall, and several people reported seeing actual ghostly cowboys. One night, they came out here and the director had hung himself. Turns out they were canceling the show for poor ratings, and he just spent a ton of money on his house or something. He was so overwhelmed with his debt, I guess. She shrugged. This is all rumors, of course. The director did die, but the internet is torn about the cause of death. She popped a piece of dried apple in her mouth from her backpack. Creepy, said Anthony, looking around. I know this is probably weird, but I love ghost stories and hauntings. All that stuff's got just kind of cool for me. Really? I asked. Anthony paused, and I realized how accusatory my tone sounded. It's just, you know, people think it's weird sometimes. I like horror movies, and people are like, oh, so you like being scared? And I don't, but I like the plot, I guess. It's cool to pretend, I said, trying to save face and come off as cool, calm, and collected. So you don't think it's real? He asked. We had a Ouija experience the first night we met, Hema told him with a big smile. A whole lot of nothing happened, he added. He narrowed his eyes. Who were you trying to contact? Spirits, Emma replied, popping another apple piece in her mouth. I waved my hands. No, no, this was before the murders. We would never. I trailed off. Emma's face dropped. Oh my god, I didn't even... No, this was like way before that. Your, your stupid RA, Steve, he was trying to hit on me, said Graham Greenlee was haunted. We called him out on it, did the Ouija in the basement. Nothing happened. Anthony looked relieved. We packed up our small things and headed back to the car, painfully aware of the sun rising higher and higher in the sky and threatening to roast us all out. Later that night, Hema was looking through the photos she took on her computer, laughing and pointing them out to me. Did you get his number? She asked. I blushed and nodded. Score, she said, flipping to another picture. She frowned and squinted before taking off her glasses and cleaning them with a wipe next to her bed. She placed them back on her face and huffed. That's weird, she said. What? I asked, getting up from the couch to approach the desk. Look, she said, pointing to an area in the picture of the set. It showed one of the old buildings partially in focus, with the major focus pointed on a half-torn Nike in front of it. Emma had a good eye for photography. I just thought it was weird. Yeah, finding a wild Nike out there was pretty cool, I told her, starting to head back to the couch. No, look, she insisted. She pointed to the window on the second story of the building. There, in the window, was a shadow that looked like a person. Probably part of the set, I said with a shrug. I don't really believe in photo phenomenon with the ghosts. I'd spent a lot of my childhood trying to capture evidence of the ghost to show Stephanie that I wasn't making it all up. No, because it's not in uh, this one. She shuffled through the photos and pulled up another view of the set. Sure enough, the window is empty. Creepy, I said. She nodded, flicking through the photos. She stopped on one of the three of us sitting on the edge of that broken down fence. 
She'd set up a makeshift tripod with some rocks and another part of the fence and set her timer to capture the three of us smiling and laughing into the camera. I'm printing this, she said, and tagging you on Facebook, she added. Today, the photo sits in a frame on my desk. It's a happy reminder, a memory of a time before things got dark and complicated. It's also the only photo I have of all three of us alive. A Conduit's Diary is created by me, written and produced by me, mixed horribly and edited by me. Cover art created by BMC Design on Fiverr. Music, intro and outro created by Chris Hornberger.